Behold the man, in Latin, Ecceomo. That is the name given to this fresco, painted around 100 years ago to adorn a church in Spain. The fresco suffered the ravages of time and the elements. With sincere love and devotion, the work of restoring the painting began. Here is the piece today. (laughs) Some of you may have seen this before. It was mockingly renamed by the internet masses as Eke Mono in an attempt to say, behold the monkey. (laughs) This morning, we are exploring our passages alongside our Advent theme of waiting. In particular, waiting for the world to be set right, waiting for restoration. In the places where our lives and our community have suffered the elements of a broken world, we long to see restoration. And in our longing, though, I think we fear that final panel Sometimes in the quiet distrust of our hearts, we believe that when God restores something, it will be less than. That a shadow of its former self is the best he can do. Restoration really means disfigurement. Not only that, but even in the trusting and faith-filled places we are aware that in many cases, returning our lives, our career choices, our intimate relationships, returning them back to their former glory is impossible. Some genies cannot be put back in the bottle. Some clocks cannot be wound back. We long for restoration. We long for the world to be set right, for us to be set right. But how? What does restoration even look like? Let's consider another painting. This portrait was commissioned for a Louisiana family dated around 1837. And you can see the yellowing of the years and the faded colors. Now let's see the restoration. The colors are vivid, the details are sharp, the portrait is lively, and there is a fourth person here. In the hands of a professional conservator, layers of paint that covered the fourth person were peeled back. And the painting is now far more than it had been for over a century. Researchers poured over records, and we learned his name, Belazare, and a fair amount of his story. What was painted over in turn-of-the-century prejudice and restoration was revealed and renewed. The restoration was not only competent, not only beautiful, but meaningful and redemptive. It was not less than restorative. It was somehow more than restorative. Our passages today speak to the desire for that kind of restoration, for God to put things right above and beyond 
our sense of a former glory. We'll spend a significant portion of our time considering what our passages say about being the people of Advent, people who desire the coming of God. And then we will contemplate the God of Advent himself. The people of Advent wait eagerly, Paul says to the church in Corinth. Our text from Isaiah comes from a community in exile. Our psalm comes from a community fractured and threatened. Our text from Mark is set in an occupied community. There is an inescapable estrangement from life as it should be. Because these were also real communities and real people, we are fair in assuming they too had to grapple with, on an individual level, many of the same things we do. Uncertain provision, relational strife, physical ailments, the significant everyday losses over which they have little control. The people of Advent are waiting eagerly for that which they cannot make happen. I wish I could point to the scriptures and say, here's how to hasten the day. Here's how to hasten the day when your pain will be no more. Here's how to hasten the day when you won't feel disoriented or vulnerable or tense or grieved. Here's how to hasten the day when the Lord will restore all things. Scripture leaves timing and means in the hands of the God of Advent. He is the one who keeps the hours and days. What I can say is that Scripture allows us to learn from our ancestors and the faith, to learn how they waited well. Waited in a way that was honest and present, with integrity, waited in a way that gave them eyes to see when God did move, waited in a way that ultimately did not diminish or disfigure them, but was woven into their restoration, a way that formed them more into the image of Jesus. I want to draw our attention to to four observations from our text First, the people of Advent are a people of confession. In Isaiah, we see this theme repeated. Verse 5, we continued to sin. Verse 6, all of us have become like one who is unclean. Verse 7, no one calls on your name or strives to take hold of you. Verse 9, do not remember our sins forever. Without confession, We are saying we want restoration and we are unwilling to peel back the paint. As we wait for God to intervene, confession grounds us in reality and makes a way for restoration, gives us the capacity to live in the presence of the God, the holy God 
whom we have just called down. We also see the people of Advent pray boldly. Psalm 80 is painfully beautiful. Our verses today, in a way they point this finger back at God while begging him to act. Show yourself, we read in verse one. Stir up your strength and come to help us, verse two. Or in other words, get up and get down here. We pray, we cry, the psalm tells us, and you have allowed this difficulty to happen. Many times it's easier to direct our sadness and anger at people, ourselves, not least of which included, because we know these people will inevitably make mistakes. We choose that over bringing it to God. And it can be scary to express our anger at God, who we know is perfect. Because he's perfect, there's a little bit of this tug of war that says, won't I automatically be in the wrong? Why not bypass that and just play along, right? Have you ever had somebody in your life like that that you argued with and you were always wrong? And so you're like, okay, why do, why do I argue, right? But to do so with the Lord would be like putting another coat of paint on something to cover up what's really there. Our disingenuity before God is not a part of his restorative process. The psalm rightly names that he is the only one who can give us what we need. He is the only one who can bring about the restoration for which we long. We need to turn the boldness of our cries, not merely towards others who are both more fallible and less powerful, but to the Lord himself. As we wait, we are invited into both sober confession and into honest and bold prayers. The people of Advent also anticipate, dare I say, ask for upheaval. Jesus tells his disciples in our Mark passage, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The gospels are replete with stories and songs from those longing for the kingdom that turns things upside down. Verse one from our Isaiah passage, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. I find it interesting that people of Advent, the people longing for the coming of God and his kingdom, don't ask for an upheaval for the other people, right? Go shake the mountain in a different continent, right? To put it another way, if you are standing next to me and you're asking for the mountain to shake, you're asking for it to shake for you too. There is a recognition among the people of Advent, that the present order is broken, no matter how good we have it in any particular moment. And a cosmic unsettling is called for. When Belazare was revealed in that portrait, 
it was unsettling. Family legacies are altered to embrace a painful narrative alongside joyous ones. The museum that held it in storage and did not have it restored and knew there was something underneath had to reckon with why that happened and give an account. For others, it was unsettling in different ways. Not only did it provide corroboration to what was felt, my ancestors were erased. It also provided a new narrative and a new hope going forward. It didn't just verify erasure, it made space to be seen. The people of Advent long for unsettling, not for unsettling sake, or so they can become the ones in charge, but because there is something on the other side of the trembling mountains, the presence of God himself. And that is worthy of our very own upheaval. Finally, the people of Advent keep watch. Keep watch, Jesus tells his disciples in Mark 13, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. We are invited to attentiveness, alertness, as we await God's arrival. When we listen to the prophets of the Old Testament and when we listen to Jesus or John speak prophetically, apocalyptically, our attention is called upon in some unique ways. This is Romanesco broccoli. It is a fascinating plant and one of the best examples of fractals in nature. And my apologies if you are a neighborhood group leader, you know I am obsessed with fractals. Um, fractals have their genetic code in this self-replicating pattern. The shape of the entire broccoli is conical, made up of other cones that spiral to the peak. If you then zoom in on any particular cone, you notice it too is made up of little spiraling cones, themselves carrying that same genetic code. Prophets move in and out of talking about the different parts of what is to come. Sometimes it's a particular cone. Others, they are talking about the whole broccoli. And by the way, I would, if given the chance, replace the word eschatology with the whole broccoli in an instant. <laughs> and here in Mark 13, Jesus does this. He moves in and out of talking about the upheaval that is at hand, namely the destruction of the second temple, as well as the grand upheaval, the whole broccoli, Jesus's bodily return, and the final putting to rights of this world once and for all. And we might well ask, am I keeping watch for the thing I'm wanting you to do in this moment? Or am I keeping watch for your returning in glory? And Jesus says, yes. It's tempting to hone in on just our node of the broccoli, that tender place 
where we're waiting for God to move. But the invitation to keep watch lifts our eyes, not at the expense of these tender places, but to their benefit. The more we allow our eyes to see what God has done in Scripture, what God is doing in the lives of those around us, what God promises to do, the more we cultivate our awareness of his movement in our present circumstances. It's kind of one of those interesting pieces where there are people who are longing for the Messiah when Jesus comes, right? And they don't recognize him, not ready. And then you have people who see him as a baby, who see him and say, that's it, right? There's a cultivation of this. We know that even though God does the unexpected, he also moves in ways that are consistent with who he's revealed himself to be. When we lift our eyes, we become better watchmen. There are many ways the Lord might have for you to engage the weight this Advent. And today, I want to commend one. The practice of praying Compline, the end-of-day prayer. It's often said that Advent begins in the dark. So does Compline. It's a prayer that begins not when you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. It begins when you're bleary-eyed and spent. When you couldn't make it light if you tried. And it's in that place you entrust yourself and trust all of creation to God. And what of this God we are entrusting ourselves to? The God of Advent. Advent meaning coming or arrival. At heart, the God of Advent is the God who comes to us. Isaiah says he is the one who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. There is more to say about him than we can say this morning. He is the owner of the house, Jesus proclaims, the one who cares more deeply than we can imagine about the state of our world and the state of our lives. Paul says it is he who will keep us firm to the end. Isaiah reminds the people Yahweh does mighty and unexpectedly good works. Most of these are things that anyone would want out of a deity, a higher power. They speak to our deep need for security. I am daily thankful for the profound security that comes from life in Christ. And yet our texts, and particularly our psalm, reveal a God who is different than I would choose. Show yourself. There is an implication here, right? Show yourself means their experience of God is, in part, that of hiddenness. God is, in some way, hidden from their sight. The God of Advent is one who allows himself to be hidden. Hidden from his people in exile. Hidden in a womb and then a backwater town. Hidden from Mary and Martha when Lazarus was dying. Hidden in the clouds after his ascension. 
We know this is the God who has come near. We are a people who believe wholeheartedly in the incarnation and the coming of Jesus. We believe his spirit resides in us even now. And yet there are times where he feels nowhere to be found. If you are experiencing the hiddenness of God in this season, you are not alone, nor are you forsaken. The God of Advent is not one who stays hidden forever. And when he is revealed, there is restoration. Our Psalms refrain may well be the verse I pray most for us this Advent. Restore again, O God. Restore us again, O God. Show the light of your countenance, and we shall be whole. It's worth noting that it doesn't say, Restore us again, O God. Fix the situations and the people in my life, and we shall be whole. That may be a corollary to what the psalm says, but it's not what the psalm says. Rather, show us the light of your countenance. Draw near. Let us see your face. Be in your presence. And we will be whole. Even in the midst of dark days, we may yet be made whole in his presence. Church of the Cross, let us wait upon the God of Advent the God who draws near even now with healing, true restoration in his wings. May we together see the light of his countenance and be made whole. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.